Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you. Thank you that you are a God to whom we can pray and that you hear our cries. Father, as you know, the author of Hebrews tells us that Jesus offered up loud prayers and petitions with tears and cries to the one who could save him from death. And you heard him. And you promise that you hear our prayers too. We love you. And in Jesus, the Messiah's name, we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Next week, and for the next four weeks, you heard Brad Brady mention, I just um, want to pause briefly one more time and encourage you not to miss Drs. Blomberg and Grotheis. Craig and Doug were two of my favorite teachers. There are very few men who have influenced me more. I'm almost wishing I would rather be here with you than with my family getting some needed rest. Not quite, but uh, almost. You don't want to miss them. They are the A-team. Their teaching is incredible. Their love of His Word you will see. And most of all, their heart for God. These are two men not to be missed. Bring a friend. Uh, Enjoy this July series. I will listen um, from Michigan but uh, you don't want to miss them beginning next week. This morning, I'd like to begin with a question. And my question is, what's your love language? And I don't mean English or Spanish or even French. No, a love language is something that says, I love you to you. And whatever says I love you to you might be different than what says I love you to the person sitting next to you. So what says I love you to you? What's your love language? Dr. Gary Chapman suggests there are five main love languages, five ways we hear or feel love from someone. You see them listed on the screen. They are words of affirmation. Someone compliments you or tells you you're doing a great job. That might say, I love you to you. Or maybe your love language is when someone spends quality time with you. Perhaps nothing says, I love you to you, more than when someone gives you their undivided attention and, you know, is really with you. Or maybe you're the touchy-feely type. You love hugs and holding hands or even when a friend or a loved one or a spouse gives you a soft touch on your shoulder, just acknowledging you with touch as they pass by. If if so, your love language might be physical touch. Or perhaps acts of service say, I love you to you when someone 
does something meaningful for you or for someone you love or something important to you. Or last, maybe your love language is receiving gifts. You are just especially floored or touched when someone takes the time to put together or to seek out and find that special gift that just fits who you are just right. Now, to be sure, all five languages speak love to most of us. But research shows that there is probably one or maybe two that rank above all the others for you to know you are indeed loved, to know someone loves you. So what do you think? Which of those on the list would be your love language? And did you know there are tests you can take to figure out your love language? Jill and I took a 60-second version of the test on Friday. I put uh, the website on the screen where you too can take the love language test if you like. For those listening online, it's edified.org slash myspace slash love language. And you know, identifying your own love language and figuring out the love language of someone else is really helpful because whatever your love language is, that's how you too will naturally try to show someone else love. But it may not be their love language, and so what you think you're sending might not be what they're receiving. This is true for Jill and for me. You see our results. I had her permission to share our results on the screen this morning. And you can see um, we be different. Words of affirmation is how I primarily hear I love you. But for Jill, you see, that's next to last on her list. And so what happens? You know, I try to tell her I love her with all my might using words of affirmation, and she really doesn't hear love that way. And, and, and that can lead to two very frustrated people. And she has acts of service as her primary love language, and that's next to last on my list. And we celebrate our 20th wedding anniversary on Wednesday. Praise God. Somehow. <laughs> and so that same disconnect can occur when we're trying to express our love for each other. If, if I want to tell Jill I love her, I need to remember uh, the, the best way I can do it, how she hears it, how God put her together is to do something for her or, or, for, or around the house or for the kids. Acts of service is her love language. I, I, I tease her, nothing says I love, I love you to Jill quite like taking out the garbage, I guess. I and Jill knows, and she'd be the first to tell you, she needs to remember to affirm me with words, out loud. <laughs> that's, that's how I primarily hear I love you um, from her and from others. Two other interesting things about our results, and then we'll move on. You had no idea you were going to be helping with our marriage this morning, did you? Quite. Quality time is second on both our lists, and so maybe that's an area where we can most easily focus to, to mutually feel love and express our love for each other. The second thing is this. Sweetheart, why, why do we even bother giving each other gifts? <laughs> it's dead last, you know, for both of us. 
Yeah, and our kids are thinking, yeah, why bother? Just give more to us. I know. I'm... And, and, and Jill, receiving gifts, zero? I mean, really, zero? Well, my Christmas shopping just got a whole lot easier. Yeah, something tells me that wouldn't be a very good idea on my part. Guys, some advice, please hear me when they say, oh, you don't need to get me anything. What they really mean is, oh, yes, you do. So trust me on this, words to live by. And all the men in the room said, amen. Did you know? <laughs> Did you know that, that God has a love language too? If you've been here the past few Sunday mornings or following along online or peeked at the title of the sermon in your bulletin, you've already guessed where I'm going this morning, God's love language is obedience. That's how God hears from us, we love you, God. And yes, God hears and knows our love for Him however we we express it, praise God. But make no mistake, His primary love language, He longs to hear from us, is indeed obedience. And did you know that our love and obedience with God comes in a marriage context? One great picture of the New Testament, of course, is our relationship to Jesus Christ. And He as the bridegroom and the church as the bride, His bride. And where do you suppose that great picture came from? Well, how about Exodus at Mount Sinai? say, really? It's really a wedding scene. Have you ever imagined God and His people entering into an exclusive covenant? God the groom and Israel as His bride. The prophet Hosea really runs with that image. There's smoke over the mountains signifying God's protection over His bride, not unlike the hoopah used in a Jewish wedding ceremony today if you've ever seen it. And let's see, if there's a wedding, we need wedding vows. God promises to be the God of His people. And the people promise Shema. Shema is our wedding vow. The people promise to love God with all her heart, all her soul, and all her might. And if it's a wedding, we need a wedding ring. Well, remember how Aaron had the people bring their jewelry? Perhaps initially intended as a wedding ring symbol and And wow, does that bring a deeper insight into that story. While God was making His wedding vows on the mountain through Moses, the people were melting their wedding rings into a golden calf. Ouch. And the tabernacle, perhaps a traveling bridal chamber, to remind the people of their wedding, their marriage to God at Sinai, and the intimacy that we enjoy with our God. We'll have to take a closer look at what happened at Sinai sometime, maybe soon. But for this morning, our love and obedience to God is in the context of marriage between God and His people, between Christ and the church, between God and us. And so when I hear people, and when I myself too, hesitate a bit at the important role obedience plays in our however grace-given salvation from God, it's helpful for me to remember our relationship to God as a marriage. I mean, can you imagine after a wedding, the groom complaining, what, now I have to love my wife and like do things for her? 
Can you imagine a bride who complains, what, now I have to give my life for my husband? Well, of course not. It's what being married means. We have the honor of serving our husbands and wives. And and so with our marriage to God, marriage is more than the wedding ceremony agreeing with words, however deeply sincere I do. And marriage is also, well, it's predominantly what comes next for the rest of our lives, living it out. Those of you who are married know this and expect this and embrace this. And, and that knowing and expecting and embracing the action and living out of marriage needs to be emphasized in my strong opinion in our marriage with God just the same. And God's love language is obedience. There are many scriptures showing how we must love God by being obedient. Perhaps none is more direct than the one written in your bulletins this morning from 1 John 5. This is love for God, to obey His commands. Or how about 1 John 2, 3 through 5? We know that we have come to know Jesus or God If we obey His commands, the man who says, I know Him, but does not do what He commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But if anyone obeys His word, God's love is truly made complete in him. And it wasn't too long ago we spent some time together in John's Gospel, chapter 14, remember, where Jesus says simply, If you love me, you will obey what I command. Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he's the one who loves me. If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. Obedience is how we are to express our love to God. God's love language is obedience. Obedience and love, like obedience and faith, are inseparable. We've got a great example of this kind of love, love expressed by obedience. The best example ever, in fact. It's Jesus. Much is made, as it should, that Jesus died for us because He loves us. And I have no desire this morning, believe me, to take away anything from that awesome truth. Jesus indeed died for us because He loves us. But there's another angle into Jesus' work on the cross. It's still the angle of love, but it's love as obedience to God that also results in the cross. No one was or is or ever will be as obedient to God as Jesus was and still is. Have you ever considered, you ever considered whether in His full humanity at least Jesus learned obedience while He was here on earth during His lifetime? To be sure, the obedience Jesus learned wasn't because, was not because he was disobedient or because he sinned. He was and is indeed without sin. 
But did you know God nevertheless taught His one and only begotten Son what obedience was all about? Hebrews 5, 7-9 tells us this. When it says, During the days of Jesus' life on earth, He offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the One who could save Him from death. And He was heard because of His reverent submission. Although He was a Son, He learned obedience from what He suffered. And once made perfect, meaning once Jesus learned all there is to know about obedience to God, He became the source of salvation for all who obey Him. We have many examples of where Jesus learned obedience from what He suffered. The two that come immediately to my mind are the first and last lessons on obedience, bookending Jesus' adult ministry. Right at the beginning of His ministry, Matthew and Luke detail Jesus' trial in the wilderness where the devil tries to convince Jesus that obedience isn't necessary. And Jesus' repeated response is, no, it is necessary that I obey, and I will obey my Father. And then near the end, there's Gethsemane. And make no mistake, Jesus is still learning obedience, its magnitude at least, right before and even through His suffering on the cross. In the words of Hebrews, with prayers and petitions and loud cries and tears to the One who could save Him from death. Jesus is still learning obedience from what He suffered. Luke tells us Jesus was in anguish and soaked in sweat, sweat like drops of blood falling to the ground. Matthew adds Jesus was sorrowful and troubled. Jesus says to His disciples, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. And He fell with His face to the ground. He can't even stand, which was the normal posture of prayer, then he can't even stand up. And Mark adds, Jesus was deeply distressed and troubled. That deeply distressed phrase in Greek includes a sudden and shocking awareness that came over Jesus. Not that he would die, he knew that before, but perhaps the magnitude and depth of what it was truly that was about to happen, about Him finally drinking completely the cup of God's wrath against all sin, all time. And Jesus is right up against it. Right up against the challenge of doing God's will. That means being obedient. He is right up against the ultimate challenge of expressing His love for God with the ultimate obedient, ultimate loving act, giving His life for others. And so, sure, Jesus died because He loves us. But He also died because He loved His Father in heaven and He knew His Father's ultimate love language is obedience. And He knew His Father had commanded had ordained that He must give His life. And so Jesus died because He obeyed God. 
Paul sees it too, right? In that famous passage from Philippians chapter 2, Paul tells us that Jesus, finding himself in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient even unto death, even death on a cross. Even death, which meant according to God's own words, he was cursed by God. And so when we struggle with obedience, maybe we should try and invite obedience into our expression of love to God because without it, it ain't really love. We would do well to continually remind ourselves that obedience is God's love language. Our obedience, above all else, says to God, I love you. For me, it's just like with Jill, I, I often struggle in expressing my love in the way she hears and knows it best. And so if I can remember that God's love language is obedience, I can better express my love for God. And when we struggle with obedience, we need to remember Jesus' expression of love for God and for us through obeying God's command that He give His life. And I, for one, I'm encouraged deeply by the fact that no matter the area of obedience I'm challenged with, I follow the one, Jesus, who can empathize with how incredibly difficult obedience can be because He was right there too in the biggest possible way. And I'm encouraged because if obedience challenged Jesus, wow, it took all He had well, then, of course, it's going to challenge me, too. So I don't need to feel shame that obedience is a struggle or feel ashamed to ask others for help. Jesus did. He asked God for help. He asked his disciples for help. The, the latter really let him down at first. But my friends, my brothers and sisters, we follow a rabbi who knows the challenge of obedience and who conquered that challenge despite incredible pain and difficulty and he's the one who is now with us to the end of the age he promises and it's in him and with him that no challenge of obedience of love for god in our life is too great no challenge is too great for us to handle so help us god god's love language is obedience and it's a love we can express, so help us Jesus, so help us God, and the Holy Spirit in particular will enable us to love God by our obedience, come what may, just like Jesus. It's the 4th of July weekend, of course, as the fireworks going off in our neighborhoods since the first week in June, it seems this year, have reminded us and our dogs, yes? Is it just me or is it, this is, I don't know, in my 43 years, I don't remember a 4th of July celebrated so loudly by, it's like every cul-de-sac in the world was lighting off fireworks. Maybe because of, I was thinking and even reflecting on that this morning as I went and bought some 50% off. <laughs> I'm an American, but I'm Dutch too, so... Maybe because the times are so tough. You know, you wonder, maybe it's, it's a little bit of that 
American spirit showing, you know, I'm going to light me off some firecrackers this year. Just as a way to, I don't know, maybe that's why. And this holiday, maybe this holiday, well, not maybe, this holiday is, of course, to celebrate our independence as a nation and as a free people. Praise God. And yes, freedom and independence is something we can and should dance about. Even set off fireworks in celebration. But I'm also reminded that while we are indeed independent, I'm reminded that as our Pledge of Allegiance still states, we are one nation under God. And so our independence is an independence to be dependent on God. And have we forgotten this, my fellow Americans? In Deuteronomy chapters 8 and 11 especially, God through Moses warns Israel about what might happen, about what would happen once God gave them their freedom and independence. Read the entire chapters sometime. Deuteronomy chapters 8 and 11. They make for a great family 4th of July reading, in my strong opinion. God warns Israel this way. He says, When you have eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God for the good land He has given you. Be careful. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God, failing to observe His commands, His laws, and decrees that I am giving you this day. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, and when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt out of the land of slavery. My fellow Americans, have we as a nation forgotten the Lord our God who brought us here out of the land of England? We were at the Rockies game last night and we had a flyover of F-16s. It was always kind of cool. And then later on they did something which I really liked. They brought into the stadium, I think as part of the seventh inning stretch, the pilots and had them stand on the visitor's dugout. You know, these young men dressed in their jumpers, smiling and waving to the crowd, and everybody gave them a thunderous applause, and I was applauding too. And we had uh, someone from the Marines, I think it was, sing both the national anthem and God Bless America. And I sang along too. Part of what moved me, however, I was overwhelmed with this sense of we're losing her. My Christian brothers and sisters, we're losing America. Recently, my dad sent me a video clip that I'll share with you in a moment. It's from the floor of the United States House of Representatives. It's a short speech 
from Representative J. Randy Forbes from the 4th District of Virginia. And he's urging support for his spiritual heritage resolution that he is sponsoring, House Resolution number 397. If passed, that resolution would designate the first week in May as America's Spiritual Heritage Week. So if passed, the week would be yet another occasion for me to get Jill a gift. But, uh, or not. The video clip caught my ear, especially this 4th of July, even as I pondered obedience and love this past week. See what you think. Mr. Forbes. Speaker. Mr. Speaker, on April 6th of this year, the President of the United States traveled halfway around the globe and in the nation of Turkey essentially proclaimed that the United States was not a Judeo-Christian nation. Now, I don't challenge his right to do that, nor do I dispute the fact that that is what he believes. But I wish that he had asked and answered two questions when he did that. The first question was whether or not we ever considered ourselves a Judeo-Christian nation. And the second one is, if we did, what was that moment in time where we ceased to be so? If you ask the first question, Mr. Speaker, you find that the very first act of the first Congress in the United States was to bring in a minister and have Congress led in prayer and afterwards read four chapters out of the Bible. A few years later, when we unanimously declared our independence, we made certain that the rights in there were given to us by our Creator. When the treaty was signed in the Treaty of Paris in 1783 that ended the Revolutionary War and birthed this nation, the signers of that document made clear that it began with this phrase, in the name of the most holy and undivided Trinity. When our Constitution was signed, the signers made sure that they punctuated the end of it by saying, in the year of our Lord, 1787. And a hundred years later, in the Supreme Court case of Holy Trinity Church versus the United States, the Supreme Court indicated after recounting the long history of faith in this country that we were even a Christian nation. President George Washington, John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, Andrew Jackson, Abraham Lincoln, William McKinley, Teddy Roosevelt, Woodrow Wilson, Herbert Hoover, Franklin Roosevelt, Harry Truman, Dwight Eisenhower, John Kennedy, Ronald Reagan, all disagreed with the President's comments and indicated how that the Bible and Judeo-Christian principles were so important in this nation. And Franklin Roosevelt even led this nation in a six-minute prayer before the invasion of perhaps the greatest battle in history and the invasion of Normandy and asked for God's protection. And after that war, when Congress came together and said, where are we going to put our trust? It wasn't in our weapon systems or our economy or our great decisions here but it was in God we trust, which is emboldened directly behind you. So if, in fact, we were a nation that was birthed on those Judeo-Christian principles, what was that moment in time when we ceased to so be? It wasn't when a small group of people succeeded in taking prayer out of our schools 
or when they tried to cover up the word referencing God on the Washington Monument, or they tried to stop our veterans from having flag-folding ceremonies at their funerals on voluntary basis because they mentioned God, or even when they tried in the new visitor center to change that national motto and to refuse to put in God we trust in there. No, Mr. Speaker, it wasn't any of those times because they can rip that word off of all of our buildings and still those Judeo-Christian principles are so interwoven in a tapestry of freedom and liberty that to begin to unravel one is to unravel the other. And that's why we have filed the Spiritual Heritage Resolution to help reaffirm that great history of faith that we have in this nation and to say to those individuals who have yielded to the temptation of concluding that we are no longer a Judeo-Christian nation, to come back. To come back and look at those great principles that birthed this nation and sustain us today. Because we believe if they do, they will conclude, as President Eisenhower did and later Gerald Ford repeated, that without God there could be no American form of government, nor an American way of life, Recognition of the supreme being is the first expression of Americanism. Thus the founding fathers of America saw it, and thus with God's help it will continue to be. And Mr. Speaker, I yield back. I love that guy. America, have we forgotten the Lord our God who brought us here and gave us this great nation? Are we as guilty as Israel ever was in forgetting God over the years of enjoying this good land, find houses, herds and flocks, silver and gold, and having all we have multiplied? As recorded in the book of Revelation, Jesus tells John to send a letter to the church in Ephesus. And in it, Jesus warns the church, I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Is America in the process of forsaking hers? Have we as a nation, a church, or even individuals forsaken our first love too? Whether as a nation or church or individual, you in your pew this morning, have we forgotten our first love? Have we forgotten that God's love language is Obedience. If we have, then Representative Forbes, when he invited America to come back, come back to her first love, he echoes Jesus' next words precisely to the church in Ephesus. Remember the height from which you have fallen, Jesus says. Repent, turn back, and do the things you did at first. 
if you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Remain in my love, Jesus tells us in John's Gospel. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in His love. God's love language is obedience. If we love God, we are to obey God. Do you love Him? Then obey Him. Beginning in August, we'll explore our love of God even more. Beginning with the question, well, what exactly does it mean to obey God? What must we obey? The answer is summarized at least in something, again, called Shema. In short, our obedience is loving God with all of every part of us and loving God first and foremost by loving others. Loving God, loving others. Now that's a catchy church bumper sticker or slogan, don't you agree? We are to be about loving God and loving others. Indeed, loving God first and foremost by loving others. Obey God. How? Loving God, loving others. We'll look at that some more beginning in August. These past few weeks, we've seen where obedience is freedom. Freedom from having to figure it all out on our own. Obedience is also faith. A faith that includes actions as well as only thought, no matter the circumstances. And obedience is love. Obedience is God's love language. Obedience is how we express our love to God. If we love God, we will obey Him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, on this Independence Day, we are reminded that the gift of independence and freedom you gave in our very American DNA was independence to be dependent on You, one nation under God. And, oh, Father, when we forget that as a nation or as a church or as individuals, help us to be reminded. Help us in Your Son's words to remember our first love, to remember You, Father. We love You. And we praise You. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. Would you stand please and receive this morning... God's good words, God's benediction. God says this, If anyone obeys His words, 
God's love is truly made complete in Him. This is how we know we are in Him. Whoever claims to live in Him must walk as Jesus did. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, Amen. Go in peace.